sometimes you have to wait. Sometimes you have to wait. And waiting can be hard and frustrating. You may have to wait for your wedding day to arrive. You may be waiting to meet someone to marry. You may be waiting for a child to come to their senses. You, you may be waiting for, for a job. You may be waiting and persevering in the Christian life as you wait for the Lord Jesus to return and for the day of the Lord to come. We have to wait, don't we? There's a lot of waiting in our world. Well, this book of Chronicles talks about waiting. It answers this question and gives God's people who are waiting encouragement because the temptation when you're having to wait is to give up. It's to stop waiting for their child to come back. It's to stop waiting for whatever it may be. It's to stop living for God. Now, this book of Chronicles is written to people, to the, the Jews, as we just read, who have returned from after the Babylonian exile. They came under the judgment of God that we just read about in chapter 36. They were sent away from God's kingdom. They were sent out of the promised land. They've now come back. And in the book of Ezra, we read that when they came back, they built the temple. So the, the people, they've got a temple. In the book of Nehemiah, we see that they've got a wall around Jerusalem. So they've started to build the kingdom again, their security. They've started to build that. But there is no, king, there is no son of David. There is, there is no Messiah. And God had promised them that when they returned, his kingdom would come. And his kingdom was a temple. His kingdom was based around Jerusalem. And of course, the most important part is that you're going to have the king. You're going to have the son of David who's bringing it all together. And as I've said before, Chronicles is this last book written in the Jewish canon, the last book most likely of the Old Testament period. And it's, it's talking about waiting for the Messiah to come. We've got the temple, we've got the wall, but we don't have the son of David yet. Now, as we continue today to look at this, we're going to see that as God's people, as the Jews at this time were waiting, they weren't waiting not knowing what was going to happen. No, God told them what was going to happen and as they were waiting, they knew what to expect. They knew what to expect. It wasn't a futile, frustrated wait. It has its difficulties, but they knew what God had promised. He'd promised the Messiah and they're meant to look at this book of Chronicles to see who is this son of David? What's he going to be like? Because that's what this final section of Chronicles is about. If you remember from our first talk in the book of Chronicles, we saw that it was about God's mission for God's people. Remember all those genealogies that we saw? 
And it said that God's, uh, God's plan for the nation of Israel was that God had made Israel the special nation amongst the, the nations of the world. And he spoke, he's speaking to the world through Israel. That was that first section that we looked at. And then last week we looked at uh, the, the what and the how of how God's going to do this, how he's going to speak to the world. And we saw it's going to be through David establishing a temple. There's going to be a temple and David's rule and one of David's sons ruling. And we saw that last week. And in our final section, which we're looking at today, which is uh, the whole of two, uh, two chronicles, we're going to be looking at the history of the sons of David. And remember that these just aren't any normal kings. These are the kings of God's kingdom. These are the Messiah kings. These are the messiahs of the Old Testament. And so what we're going to find is that as God's people are waiting for the Messiah to come, God, through his prophet who wrote the book of Chronicles, is going to say, as you wait for the Messiah, I've given you a book to talk about the Messiahs, to show you what the good Messiahs were like, what the bad Messiahs are like, so that you can understand what to expect as you wait for the son of David to come. You've got your temple, you've got your walls, but as you wait for the son of David to arrive, you need to know, you need to know some lessons about the Messiah and what the Messiah should be like. So that's what we're looking at today. And this is an encouragement for us to, to not give up. To not give up, to know that God has his plan. God is sending his Messiah. God is sending the one who will bring it all together. And so we're to persevere and, and wait. So let's have a look at this uh, as, we, uh, as we begin, where 2 Chronicles begins. So it begins, first of all, with Solomon. It begins with Solomon, a famous name. So come back with me to Solomon. Uh, where are we? Begins with Solomon. And, and we see the glory of the kingdom. Now, Solomon was David's son. Solomon was David's, you could sort of say he's the first son who, to become king after King David. And we read about the glory that God gives to King Solomon. So let's look at chapter 5, verse 13. 13 to 14. It says here, The trumpeters and, and singers joined in union as with one voice to give praise and thanks to the Lord, Accompanied by trumpets, cymbals, and other instruments, they raised their voices in praise to the Lord and sang, He is good, his love endures forever. Then the temple of the Lord was filled with a cloud, and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, because of the glory of the Lord had filled the temple of God. So God had said to King David, Your son will build me the temple. Remember, David was a man of blood, so he couldn't do it. And we see here a whole lot of stories in the first nine chapters all about King Solomon. And so we see here that he builds this temple, and it's a magnificent temple, and the glory of God's, God's very presence dwelt in this place so that the people couldn't even go in. Imagine having God in your building like that, where God dwelt with you. This is how the nation of Israel was special that God dwelt in their midst. We then have the story of the Queen of Sheba coming to King Solomon, asking him questions. 
And so we see that the wisdom of God and the, the wisdom for the world radiates out from Israel to the nations around. The nations of the world come to, to get wisdom, not just about God, but the, the wisdom for life, the wisdom about how to live in the world. We then see that there's a section on trade. As Solomon becomes a trader with Egypt, with Aram in the north, down the Arabian Peninsula, he does all this, this trading. He becomes a commercial centre for the world. Not only that, but there's peace and safety in Jerusalem. Now, that doesn't happen very often. But during Solomon's time, there is peace and safety for God's people. They live at peace with those around them. There's wealth and abundance. It says that Solomon made uh, uh, gold as, as, as common as silver. And so God's people were enriched and blessed as Solomon, this Messiah king, is, is blessed by God. Now, what does this show us, these first nine chapters? It actually shows us that God has been faithful to his promises. So as God's people are waiting for the Messiah King to come, they can look back to what God did under Solomon and say, God kept his promise. Right? God kept his promise. And we need to know that, don't we, as Christians? As we wait for the Lord Jesus to return, we need to look back in Scripture and see how God has kept his promise. It's not just that God has said to you, I promise something in the future and... You know, just wait. It, it, the Bible's not like that. The Bible says, I promise you something in the future, but look back at what I've done in the past. Look at how I kept my promise with Noah. Look at how I kept my promise with Abraham. Look at how I kept my promise with Solomon. Look at the glory that there was under, the, under Solomon. You see, maybe you're not a Christian. God is has proven himself to be faithful in the past. He's proven himself to be faithful in the past, and that's what we hold on to. And, and these first nine chapters here, for these Jews who are waiting for the Messiah to come, they can look back to the first Messiah king, or one of the first Solomon, and go, yeah, God did raise up Solomon. God did establish his kingdom. We know that God is reliable. We know that God will do these things. So we're going to wait. I want to encourage you the same. If you're a Christian, you know, to be persevering in the Christian life. Persevere. Look back in the scriptures. Look at how God has been faithful. As we wait for God to fulfill his promise and bring the Lord Jesus Christ, we need to remember that he is a faithful God, that he has kept his promises. That's the first nine chapters for us. God has been faithful. We can look back to those. Now, it quickly moves on from Solomon. And after Solomon, the kingdom of Israel divides between the northern tribes and the southern tribes. And this is actually a bad thing for the kingdom. It breaks into two parts. But the, the, the book of Chronicles now looks at what the good kings were like and what the bad kings were like, what the good messiahs were like and what the bad messiahs were like. And so these are important things for those who are waiting for the Messiah to come to, to look at these and go, this is what a good king's like. This is what I'm waiting for. And this is a bad one. This is not what I'm waiting for. And so we're going to go through now some of these kings and look at what 
a good king was like and what a bad king was like. And this is actually going to teach us what the Messiah will be like that we're waiting for. So let's look at some bad examples first of all. The first one is a man named Jeroboam. So come with me to 2 Chronicles, chapter 11, Jeroboam. Now, what had happened was Solomon, in his last days, was foolish. He, was, he put a, a heavy burden on the people for his own glory, and this resulted in the kingdom of Israel splitting. And God actually brought about this as a judgment, and he, he appointed him a king called Jeroboam, who wasn't from David's line, but he was still a king that God had appointed to rule the ten northern tribes of Israel in the north. Now, let's see what Jeroboam did. So, chapter 11, verse 13 to 15. The priests and the Levites from all their districts throughout all Israel sided with him. Now, this is with, with the king of the south, with, with David's son. The Levites even abandoned their pasture lands and properties and came to Judah and Jerusalem because Jeroboam and his sons had rejected them as priests, as priests of the Lord. And he appointed his own priests for the high places and for the goat and calf idols he had made. So what has Jeroboam done? God said to Jeroboam, I'll give you this kingdom. You can rule the ten northern tribes, but... Your people have to go down to Jerusalem, to the kingdom next to you, to worship me at Jerusalem. Now, that actually calls for faith upon the part of that king, doesn't it? You imagine if you're King Jeroboam and God has given you a kingdom, that's nice. But God says, but those people in your kingdom, they need to leave your kingdom and go on pilgrimage to Jerusalem, to worship me there. Now, what does Jeroboam do? Jeroboam says, no, I'm not going to do that. And so he appoints his own priests. He gets rid of the Levites, the Levitical priests, and he sets up his own religion. He goes, God's people can just have another religion. I'll make a new one for them. See, he wouldn't trust that God would look after him. He wouldn't trust that God would maintain his kingdom if his people had to go and worship somewhere else. And so he sets up his own religion. He makes idols, one in the north, one in the south, so his people don't have to go outside of, of his kingdom. Now, you know, many people today actually think that they can do this with God. They feel that they can just pick and choose, be eclectic, and, and make their own religion. And that it doesn't really matter how you worship God, you can just do it whichever way you like. That's what Jeroboam demonstrates. He, he thinks that he can just do it his own way. He can make up his own religion. He doesn't believe that God's what God determines how we are to worship him. And he, he thinks he can do it his own way. Now, he's wrong. God is the one who determines how we approach him. And we shouldn't go thinking that anyone can just make up whichever way they like. So that's a bad example. Now, the, the next example we see is King Ahaz. Come across to chapter 28, 28 verse 22. He does a similar thing. 2 Chronicles, chapter 28, 
chapter 28, verse 22. Now, Ahaz has... Um, he, he's gone and visited another temple, a temple of the Assyrians up in, up in Syria. And in verse 22, it says... In his time of trouble, King Ahaz became even more unfaithful to the Lord. He offered sacrifices to the gods of Damascus, who had defeated him, for he thought, since the gods of the kings of Aram have helped me, have helped them, I will sacrifice to them so that they will help me. But they were his downfall and the downfall of all Israel. Now, you see how that begins? It's, it's the time of his trouble. See, for King Ahaz, life was getting difficult. And it is difficult. If you get conquered by somebody, someone comes in with an army, that, that, that's, that's difficult, isn't it? Ahaz is responsible for looking after his, his nation. And his nation has been conquered by another nation. So he says, it's time to change God. It's time to look for help elsewhere. Now, well, we can sort of do that, can't we, when things get difficult? Um, you know, because what, what I find personally in temptation is that I'm fine with temptation when everything's going fine and there's really no temptation there. Right? Is that how you are? So when, when there's really no temptation around me, when there's no difficulties to, to push me, I'm okay. I can keep walking in God's way. But it's actually when there's difficulty and distress that... That, that's the moment when you've actually got to be seen to be genuine. And Ahaz, in this time, when the time was difficult, when there was a time of suffering for him, when as the Messiah, he was called upon to suffer in God's way, he said no. He said no. He ignored the words of God's prophet. And of course, this is not what God's Messiah, King, should be like. Now, most of the book of Chronicles actually spends its time looking at the good examples of kings. And, and one of the things you'll notice if you compare the book of Kings to Chronicles, which are sort of similar books, you'll, you'll notice that Chronicles actually doesn't give the bad reports of some kings. It just focuses on, the, on their good. And that's because it wants to show you what a good Messiah is, because it's actually preparing you for the future. So we're going to look now at what the good Messiah should be like. And we're going to look at Hezekiah and Josiah. Now, the first thing we see with King Hezekiah is that he responds to the word of God. When he hears the word of God, he responds in obedience. Now, obedience is actually something that our culture really has a problem with. Okay? There are very few situations in our culture today where people say, obey. We really do not like that. And we've actually tried to make an entire culture where nobody has to obey anybody. So even with the virus, just think about this with the virus. We're only now starting to get to the stage where it's compulsory vaccination for some people. But that's quite recent. Up until recently, how were they doing it? They were just saying, we just want people to have the education and to make the decision because in our Western culture... We hate the idea of obedience. We actually do. We do not like it. And we would rather educate you because we know you'll make the right decision, but we're not going to actually call upon you to obey. 
So you'll very rarely hear, hear somebody say, obey the government. That's anathema in our world. But in the book of Kings, obedience to God's word is a virtue. Obedience is a virtue. I remember uh, one of the ways that I tried to prepare my children for life in the world was I knew that they'd go to parties where people would be smoking marijuana or drinking too much or whatever it might be, and they'd, they'd be under pressure to, to conform, to go along, just because these are their friends and they want to be friends and so you want to do the same thing with other people. And so, you know, that there's pressure that they face. And so I said to them, if you're ever in a situation where there's pressure to go with the group, then say to your friends, um, I'm not going to do that because I want to obey my father. Now, they never said that <laughs> because it would be embarrassing, wouldn't it? But that actually proves the point, right? To actually say, I'm going to obey my parents. I mean, when are children actually taught to obey their parents? See, obedience has a really, really bad rap. We've, we've got it, like, if, if you're not a Christian, you need to understand that you, you, you think, you've been brought up in a culture in which obedience is a dirty word. But in the Bible, obeying your creator, obeying the God who speaks to you, obeying the God who loves you, is actually a good thing. Obedience in the Bible is a great thing. It's the right way of, of engaging with God, to obey God. We mustn't let the world tell us what's right and wrong when it comes to obedience. So that's the first thing with Hezekiah. He obeys God. He listens to God's word and he, re he responds in obedience. Secondly, when the Assyrians come, when the Assyrians come, a, a big superpower of the day come, he's not like Ahaz. Ahaz just went, quick, let's change gods to the, the Syrian gods. No, no. He trusts God's word. The prophet Isaiah speaks to him and Hezekiah trusts in God's word. Even though it's difficult, uh, even though there's going to be suffering from having the Assyrians come against you, he, he trusts God's word, even though it involves suffering. The next thing we read him that he does is in chapter 29, verses 2 and 3. Um, so, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. In the first month of the first year of his reign, he opened the doors of the temple of the Lord and repaired them. He brought in the priests and the Levites, assembled them in the square of the east and said, listen to me, Levites, consecrate yourselves now and consecrate the temple of the Lord. And, and so he, what does he do? He hears the word of God. He trusts in God, even though it would involve suffering for him. And then what does he do? He cleanses the temple. He cleanses the temple. Look in verse 10. Let's see what, what else he does. Verse 10. Chapter nine, verse, uh, 29, verse 10. Now I intend to make a covenant with the Lord, the God of Israel, so that his fierce anger will turn away from us. So he hears God's word and he obeys. He trusts God even though it's difficult. He cleanses the temple and he makes a covenant for God's people. And it's a covenant to turn aside God's wrath. A covenant to turn aside God's wrath. You see, this is a good king, isn't it? Come across to chapter 30. Have a look what else he does. Chapter 30, verse 1. 
Hezekiah sent word to all Israel and Judah and also wrote letters to Ephraim and Manasseh inviting them to come to... So Ephraim and Manasseh are like in the, the northern kingdom, uh, well, what's left of it, inviting them to come to the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover to the Lord, the God of Israel. So he's reaching out to, to the remnants of the northern tribe who would become the Samaritans. And he's saying, come and celebrate the Passover. Now, what does all this do? Well, the result of him doing this is, look in verse 10. 29 verse 10. Whoops, where am I? 29 verse 10. I think we already looked at that, didn't we? It was turning aside God's wrath. And so even though the Assyrians came down, God's wrath was turned aside and they left. And so you see here, this is what makes for a good king. This is the type of king you should hope for. He hears the word of God and obeys. He's the obedient king. He, he endures even when it's difficult. He cleanses the temple he makes a covenant. He, he, uh, he celebrates the Passover. I, I think what I didn't mention there was that he actually provides for the Passover. So the, the good king provides the sacrifices for the Passover for everyone. And he turns aside God's wrath. He turns aside God's wrath. This is what the good kings do in the book of Chronicles. They establish God's kingdom. Let's have a look at Josiah. Josiah... Again, Josiah responds to the word of God. We had that in our reading, didn't we? He hears the word of God and trembles before it. And then what does he do? Look at chapter 34, verse 8. Chapter 34, verse 8. What does he do? In the 18th year of Josiah's reign, to purify the land and the temple, he, said, he sent Shaphan and Azaliah and Manasseh, the ruler of the city, with Joah and Joahaz, the recorder, to repair the temple of the Lord his God. So the first thing he does is he hears God's word and then he goes out and cleanses the temple. There's a, a temple cleansing. Then what does he do? Look in chapter 34, verse 31. You'll see this pattern just being repeated again and again. Verse 34, uh, 34 verse 31. The king stood by the pillar and renewed the covenant in the presence of the Lord to follow the Lord and keep his commandment, regulations and decrees with all his heart and all his soul and to obey the words of the covenant written in the book. So the next thing he does is there's a covenant ceremony where he makes a covenant with all the people. You see, this is the good king. He obeys. He trusts in God regardless of what the people are saying around him. He cleanses the temple he makes a covenant with the people to keep the law. And then look in chapter 35, verse 7. What does he do? Chapter 35, verse 7. Josiah provided for all the lay people who were there a total of 30,000 sheep and goats for the Passover offering and also 3,000 cattle, all from the king's own possessions. You see, he celebrates the Passover, but he provides for the Passover. Now, what's the result of this? Look in chapter 34, verse 28. The result of this 
now I will. Uh, so, that, so this is God speaking through the prophet to Josiah. He says, uh, God says, Now I will gather you to your fathers, and you will be buried in peace. Your eyes will not see all the disaster I am going to bring on this place and on those who, uh, who live here. So they, so, they, so they took their answer back to the king. Now, what you see there is that God has said to Josiah, you're not going to see the disaster I'm bringing. That is, God was going to bring judgment on Israel, but Josiah's actions have actually turned aside the wrath of God. He's turned aside the wrath of God. Now, I'm not going to go through all of them, but you see similar patterns in these kings. Let's just have a summary of, of what we've seen in the good kings. This is what makes a good messiah. This is when the history is told of what the good messiahs were like when you're waiting for the messiah to come. This is what the good messiah looked like. He sought the Lord and obeyed God. He was obedient. He cleansed the temple. He made a covenant with the people. He celebrated the Passover and provided the Passover sacrifice. And in doing so, he turned aside God's wrath and established the kingdom of God. Now, we can look at this and think, oh, okay, these are important things for me to know, and I'm sure you know where I'm heading with this. But I just want you to imagine if you were one of the sons of David reading this book. If you were one of the sons of David reading this book, what would you be thinking? You'd actually be thinking, this is what I've got to do. I'm going to come back to that. As we keep reading, we see that Josiah is actually not the king. He, he, he brings these blessings. He does all these things. But in chapter 35, verse 20, it seems that he assumed everything was okay. And he reached beyond who he was. And he went out in battle thinking that God would support him. And he lost in battle and was killed. And so Josiah is not the king. And so, in the end, the kings of Israel actually were not able to turn aside God's wrath. And we read about that, didn't we, in the final chapter of Chronicles, where the king of Babylon comes, destroys Jerusalem. They weren't able to turn aside God's wrath. Now, I hope you can see, though, how the book of Chronicles is fulfilled by Jesus. Right? Because when Jesus comes... It's not just a verse here or just there that he's come to fulfill. He's actually come to fulfill the whole thing. You see, when Jesus comes, what does he do? Well, he is the obedient one. In fact, he's the sinless one. He hears God's word and he obeys. He makes a covenant, the new covenant, with God's people. He celebrates the Passover and he provides the Passover for God's people. It's through Jesus that God's wrath is fully turned aside from God's people. And he establishes the resurrection kingdom forever. Now, how do you know that Jesus is this king? How do you know that he is the one who has endured? How do you know that he is the one who did celebrate the true Passover? How, how, how do you to know that he is the one who did offer up the proper Passover sacrifice with his own life on the cross. Well, it's because of his resurrection from the dead. When he was raised from the dead, 
God said, this is the one. This is just how Paul talks in his sermons, where he'll say, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God, declared to be the Messiah through his resurrection from the dead. The life that Jesus lived, God has shown his approval through raising Jesus from the dead. You see, often when we, we, we look at the Bible, we might think, as I said, there might be a verse here or a verse there that Jesus came to fulfill. He actually came to fulfill the whole of 1 and 2 Chronicles. It's not just a verse here or there. It's the whole thing. He is the good Messiah that the whole of 2 Chronicles spells out time and time again. That that is who he is. It's not just a verse here or a verse there. It's, it's whole books. And we can read these books for ourselves, and I want to encourage you in your Bible reading, but I want to say to you, the books of Chronicles were first of all written for Jesus before they were written for you. 1 and 2 Chronicles were written for Jesus before they were written for you. You read them secondarily, they are primarily written for Jesus. Because when Jesus comes as the Messiah, he's called upon to read the Scriptures. He's called upon to, to understand God's plan. He's called upon to walk in the path that he finds in the scriptures. And what is spelt out in here is exactly what he does in the gospel. So to conclude, the book of Chronicles, as we've seen, is God's word that he's been giving to his people who are waiting for the Messiah to come. Waiting and, and saying, should we continue in our mission as God's people? And God is saying, yes, continue in the mission. The mission continues. But there's a big difference between us and them, isn't it? Isn't there? For them, they had, they had an idea of what the Messiah would be like, the types of things he would do, and they had to wait. For us, we actually know who the Messiah is. We can actually read the Gospels and say, here is the Messiah who was obedient. Here is the Messiah who did endure under suffering. Here is the Messiah who did make the new covenant. Here is the Messiah who did offer up the Passover sacrifice and provided himself. Here is the Messiah who has fulfilled everything that God said he would do. How much more confident can we be that God's going to fulfill his purposes in the future when we, we can look back? Just as the Jews could look back to, to Noah, they could look back to Abraham, they could look back to Solomon... We can now look back to Jesus and say, look at what God did in Jesus. He has sent that Messiah. There is no doubt. Jesus fulfills it. God's shown his approval through his resurrection from the dead. And so that's where we fix our eyes now. We fix our eyes on Christ. We continue in the mission that God has called us to live. Amen.